0: This is episode 124 of Offscript with Trish Gloss, intimate interviews with interesting people. And joining me today via Skype, I have Tim Hanai, master of wine, my former Oregon neighbor, but he's since moved away from me, which I don't like. Also, creator of My Venotype, um, author, Why You Like the Wines You Like. Hello, sir. Thank you for being here.
1: Well, it's an absolute pleasure.
0: Um, I've actually been wanting to get you onto this podcast for quite some time. Um, but I'm glad I finally snagged you because your story is very interesting from what I know and especially your biz, the Venotype. very fascinating. I took a class from you uh, several months ago. It wasn't last year because none of us were hanging out last year. So it was probably about two years ago where you were just talking about all things taste and taste buds and what you like and what you don't like and why. So we're going to talk about all of those things. First though, yay. yay. <laughs> First though, where are you from originally, Tim?
1: Uh, so I was born in Euclid, Ohio, uh, which is very close to the Ohio wine country, which is along the, the shore of Lake Erie for the most part, you mm-hmm. know, extending all the way up to Buffalo and, and so forth. And, uh, and then when we were uh, kids, I was about five years old, we moved to Miami, Florida and we went to the jungle and this that was uh 1957 mm-hmm. uh and so what little growing up i've done in life i did in in florida and then um uh lived there in until my 20s and uh then went gallivanting off around the world
0: so was that a bit of a culture shock ohio to florida
1: oh it was fantastic yeah. you know for um, a five-year-old and with with twin brothers that that were a year older. You know, it was you know from uh, snow and ice, cold water and that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, we were we were almost quite literally in the in the jungle. So we were we we're on the edge of the Everglades and snakes and. Animals and fishing and all sorts of cool stuff
0: and bugs. What was it like growing up with uh, twin brothers?
1: Um, fascinating, uh, because of the the dynamics of twins. Uh, they were they're fraternal twins, and um, and so very different in, in their you know uh, personalities and even looks and and whatever. But I was always little Timmy, and that had a profound effect on my psyche.
0: Did it? How so?
1: Well, it's 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 part of actually what I study, going back to my phenotype and whatever. I mean, the dynamics of siblings and peers and whatever shape and and uh, and and very much affect perception. Hmm. You know who we are inside of family and kind of the hierarchy of life.
0: Yeah, I've always thought that too, because I'm always curious where people are if they have siblings in the lineup, because I think it says a lot about who you are, like I'm the baby of the family. So I want all the attention all the time. And that has played out my entire life. Right. You're the baby too. Exactly. So we like to be in front of people. We like to kind of show our talents in front of people. I love to be on a stage. So I think that says a lot about who you are. I've always thought that. And if you're like the oldest, you're sort of the go-getter, overachiever person. Have you, and that's what you've been studying?
1: Well, it- Studied? Yes. Um, I mean, in in, in my book, you know, why you like the wines you like and my current research and vino types, the whole thing is, And and we also tend to think in generalizations. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So there are people who are the youngest and have a certain behaviors and so on. But neurologically and psychologically that can turn in a second. And so they take on traits and behaviors that are very different from somebody. uh, For example, that, that, that was the baby in the family. And we call these conflicted phenotypes. Okay. And and it's it's not a bad thing or whatever. So the word venotype came from phenotype. Hmm. And so what the, the research I do is we look at uh, uh, genetics and physiology of perception, uh, the neurology, which is absolutely fascinating, and and what what information is sent where to be processed in the brain and then once it's processed how it how it's then transmitted for our actions and behaviors and and that kind of stuff and then the third component of a venotype is is your psychology so over time and uh, uh, to to bring this back to wine a little bit um, (laughs) there's this idea, you know, as your palate matures, you like different wines and we can acquire tastes and whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is just actually it's not your palate changing at all. It's changes in either your well, in the combination of your n- neurology and your psychology. It's it's how you're processing things that all of a sudden you like something you didn't like. hmm. Or you dispose of a taste by not liking things that intuitively you do or did like, so so it's it's just a, a, a fascinating world. So some people grow up as the baby and maybe are thrust into a different capacity of taking care of the family or stepping in and you know uh, uh, to to be the moderator of the the family, and all of a sudden they assume a different role.
0: Interesting. Okay. Okay. That's fascinating. You're also a um, professionally trained chef. So I'm curious, was food important in your family growing up?
1: Very. Yeah. How so? so? My dad was a a gourmet cook. My mom was a really great cook. Um, And uh, when we moved to to Florida, my dad was the director of the medical association, the administrative director. And so uh, we got to from the time of being very, very little, we used to get to go to these great um, hotels because my dad would have conferences that he was organizing and whatever. And of course, Miami Beach was one of the, that and Vegas and the Bahamas, the in places to go. Mm -hmm. So, um, and he was a member of the Shenderota Sirs and the Physicians Wine Guild and all sorts of cool stuff. So it was, um, yeah, it was just a, a big part of, of our family life.
0: Yeah, you grew up with that. You grew up with food and wine, it sounds like. Yep. So, so anything from mom and dad that they would cook, was there ever like a favorite meal that you guys were just like, what are we having for dinner tonight? And then you're like, yeah.
1: You know, I. Uh, uh, where, I where I fit in the sensory world yeah. is not a friendly place. And, and and we'll get to that mm-hmm. later uh, but I had um, more dislikes than I had absolute attractions okay um, I wouldn't eat fat I, I had uh, some some real uh, aversion to certain things but that being said I was willing to try anything and so uh, I mean my I, I didn't have necessarily. I've got to have this or I want to have this. I was constantly exploring and and trying new things inside of um, having some some fairly narrow boundaries of what I liked and didn't like. I don't know if that makes sense. It does
0: absolutely. Um, yeah, there's so many questions. So. You said you left Florida around your twenties. What were you? What were you looking to do? Was it school? Was it exploring?
1: No, I was, I was working as a chef. I dropped out of college uh, uh, at the University of South Florida in Tampa, and went to work for Burns Steakhouse. Do you know about Burns?
0: I don't. Tell me about Burns.
1: Uh, largest wine list in the world, um, period, uh, and a really great. Um, just a really great story of a, a of a guy named Bern Laxer, B.E.R.B.E.R.N. Vasquez, mm-hmm. and his wife Gertrude, and they ran a little hamburger cafe across uh, the street from uh, University of Tampa, and he was really into wine, and and so he started to upscale his restaurant, and then they. They were a little strip mall, so they expanded and they bought the Electrolux vacuum cleaner store and then expanded into the drugstore and then into the Wind Dixie. They so they owned this this whole thing. But but it's 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 now sort of a, a, a virtual city almost of of a hotel and restaurants and cafes and whatever. Wow. But but when I was growing up, they their wine list was seventeen pages. The first one I saw that my dad had had brought home, and you know my interest in wine got got peaked when I was fourteen years old. I started reading books and
0: hmm.
1: and drinking a lot and uh, learning about wine. And so uh, uh, Burns was always this just iconic, you know the the Emerald City, and uh, and currently the wine list is two books of 300 pages each and of course it's all they've got the the electronic uh wine list now and and whatever but um uh, my dad and i used to go uh when i was older and then certainly when i when i was um uh, going to college and and uh and so we had really specific kind of protocol when we went there how we ordered the steak what what steak what wines but you know we'd go and have a a really great 1959 Chateau de pop or something like that and and i just remember being so fascinated with it so oh. when i was in college i was i was cooking for a couple guys in my dorm floor uh, as their personal chef and um and then uh uh, said the heck with this. This is what I want to do. So, dropped out of college b- before it was hit to become a chef and started serving my apprenticeships. And so, from time I was, um, let's see, what was about 18 till till I was 27, I was working as a professional chef.
0: Wow. All, all at Burns Steakhouse or different places?
1: Oh, dif- different pra- I'm I'm ADHD and dyslexic and all this kind of stuff. So you can't keep my interest. uh, Oh, look, a rabbit, Uh, (laughs) a squirrel. uh, (laughs) So, um, so I, I I worked at Burns and did that. And then I landed a job back in Miami as an apprentice pastry chef. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, by the by the great classics, uh, great, great chefs are always grounded in pastries, uh, and, and I had the opportunity to work for a really great Italian uh, pastry chef, one of the last of a dying breed. And, um, and then worked at different restaurants and bounced around for 10 years.
0: So I get wine has been important. It sounds like since you were about 14, it was a big deal for dad. That was something that you guys shared together. What set you on the path though?
1: You know, it it, it was kind of set pretty early because Mm -hmm. wine got me into the culinary arts Mm -hmm. and gastronomy and and reading books like La Russe Gastronomique which I've got around, I I always have it nearby. Um, And uh, the other thing my dad shared with me is genetics for alcoholism. And so one of one of the things that really got me started early was, it seemed that as, as long as it was wine related, I got to drink. Ah. And um, and so, uh, jumping to the end of the story, I'm uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic for 27 years, and uh, which is a whole different facet of things that really complicates what?
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, when, yes, when I found out that about you, that's exactly what I said. Uh, Dad? Alcoholic? Okay. Dad, granddad. Yeah.
1: All through the family, generations, and I'm screwing it up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're screwing it up by staying sober for 27 years, which good on you for that. So you've always, so that it's always been, I guess, a part of you because of that. But, I guess, when did you go the education side of things where you were you were just wanting to to learn more about wine? Was it because you got to drink it? i mean, what what was it about this thing?
1: It was kind of from the get go. Okay. Um, I don't I don't are you have you ever uh, read? Or, or do you know of Larousse Gastronomique?
0: So yes, I I haven't read it, but I know what you're talking about. I know the book, yes. But tell tell me about yeah. it, please.
1: And and so it's a the one that that I use is this this is our original family edition, and I named a, a Vishla a dog that I had after the author Prosper Montaigne, and uh, he he ate the binding <laughs> off of it, but. Um, <laughs> We had this lying around, this is, there's a new LaRousse Gastronomique, mm-hmm. and, and and it's a fine book and whatever, this is the real deal, this okay. is a blast. And, and in it you'll find the French never paired wine and food. Right. You'll find recipes that'll just sort of blow your mind. Uh, there's one for beef extract and and it says, take a quarter of a beef carcass or a calf, two sheep, two dozen old hens, Put it in a large pot, and it's like no kidding, Sherlock. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: So you know, I I just started reading it, and and it's also uh, encyclopedic. Mm -hmm. Um, So as far as my ADHD and whatever, I can just flip from one thing to another, and I still do. I I mean, this is uh, we've got a copy in the bathroom also, and uh, and I've never stopped reading it. I believe you know it.
0: I believe Julia Child was a big fan of that book.
1: Big fan, okay. yes. Okay. Julia was, yep. And my dad and I used to watch Julia Child back in the 60s together, mm-hmm. you know, when, when that was the the big thing. And uh, yeah. so I was, you know, um, I didn't do well in school. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and um, And that was seen from very early on. And so... Uh, It was it was very interesting that I I picked up something like this and and just soaked it in
0: Yeah, I mean you can't we can't help those passions and and what we're interested in and when you find something that you're interested in You seem to just as Julia Child has said it it doesn't matter You'll stay up until two o'clock in the morning figuring out a recipe for a cookbook because that's what you do And that's what she wanted to do so um that's so funny. I am actually, I'm reading Julia Child's book, My Life in France. I don't oh, know. Wonderful. I don't know if you've read it. It's amazing.
1: I don't read. <laughs> I I, I, re, I read a, um, <laughs> I read a book, uh, last year. Uh, but I, I'm serious about this. Really? Uh, my dyslexia makes, makes reading just horrible. And, 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 and this wasn't, you know, a lot of the ways my brain wor- works or doesn't work uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, is is generally recognized early on for a lot of of people. Our our youngest son, Landon, who's 25, he's basically Sheldon from The Big Bang,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he he could it could have been a real problem for him other than we had him diagnosed with brain scans and and whatever. And he's this monumentally successful, smart and empathetic person because there's, there's all these correlations of how our brains work, how we perceive the world, how we process information and everybody is absolutely unique in, in that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And so, um, in, in my case, I was the one fidgeting, I was the, you know, uh, you, you can see it in my report cards from first grade on, you know what, oh, Timmy's quite the active little kid, and by sixth grade, it's somebody better do something with the son of a bitch, he's going to be incarcerated <laughs> by the time he's 15.
0: <laughs> oh, Tim, that's the best. Yeah. So, um, my I, one of my very best friends in college is dyslexic, and watching her study was incredible and because she was so dedicated to it and she would get frustrated from time to time but her dedication to learning and study that was not going to slow her down so I've always um, you know I've I've seen people who had learning disabilities always been very empathetic for those folks because it's hard and for a lot of them they don't give up and they just keep they keep pushing forward and do great things. So let's talk about being a master of wine. You, in 1990, you were awarded this title, Master of Wine, becoming one of the first two resident Americans. Right back there? Is that what that is? Yep. Awesome. That's it. But one of two resident Americans to achieve what some would say this is the highest honor in international the international wine industry. What's the point?
1: So the point, the, the institute was um, an honor offshoot of the old, uh, uh, in Europe, they had guilds and trade associations, mm-hmm. and you served apprenticeships and so on and so forth. So the, the organization actually has its roots going back to, I don't know, something like the 12th century or, what, or whatever. And in the early 50s, um, uh, the UK was the epicenter of the global wine trade. And a lot of people don't understand that. Right. Uh, they um, they fundamentally, you know, uh, Bordeaux for a long, long time was part of the British Empire. They established the port wine trade. They uh, had holdings and and whatever. So uh, in the early and, and up until the early fifties, most wines weren't bottled. Uh, even wines that you would think, oh my God, how 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 could those not have been you know bottled? Mm-hmm. But um, uh, so the so the the UK wine trade, uh, if if you were uh, bottling your chateau uh, product, you would actually sell it to a company in board or in London or Bristol or or Bath or whatever. You would send the barrels, and they would do the bottling. Oh. and and yeah and, and and I'll air this out early my frustration with this whole stuff about wine i love wine god you will never find somebody that's whose life's been more enriched by wine than me mm-hmm. even though i don't drink mm-hmm. and a lot of people that think that disqualifies me from being an expert about it but what we don't know about wine is way more vast than all this stuff that people are pushed into learning about it. Okay. And so things like, you know, the the UK role and a master of wine was developed to serve as a credential of expertise in the business and sciences and communication about wine. Gotcha. So it's not you know, versus a sommelier, which is an incredibly hard examination and, and, uh, and, and so forth and, uh, about the service of wine and, 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 uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So what's happened is wine has become this big trivia thing and it's also become a big ego booster or, you know, look at me, I'm special and and whatever. And so, um, So the Master of Wine examination was created to to demonstrate that people had an expertise in every part of the supply chain of wine, the value chain, understands laws, regulations. And this is why it's so hard to pass, because people will get into the program thinking it's a trivia quiz. And it's not. It's, it's four days of examination and essays about the business, and the sciences, and the art of wine, uh, and the ability to cr- critically think about various topics. Mm. Say, well, okay, well, here's how it's done by this person, or this region, or for this grape, in this way, and here's another way to approach it. So. So it's it's really about a much deeper understanding, and a, a, again, principally about the business.
0: Right. What is it about wine that you love so much?
1: Just the um, the the sheer s- scope and diversity of it all, and and how it ties in the arts and business and science and you know the 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 culinary arts and uh culture and traditions
0: yeah i think it's
1: diversity
0: yeah for me it's one of those it's it's something that tends to bring people together and i think what is fascinating about it you hit on it there's so much we don't know about it which can make it overwhelming but also intriguing
1: well it's 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 made out to be something really difficult Uh uh-huh uh there are some huge misunderstandings about perception. And so, in a way, it also pushes people really far apart. It disenfranchises people. Uh, it's it it's culminated in judging people by the wines they drink, mm. according to certain gatekeepers who feel some sort of, superiority up, o- over others because they like certain wines or because they're knowledgeable. And, and I actually, <laughs> this is one of my pet peeves, um, wine is not hospitable. There is no hospitality in wine anymore. We think there is, we, we have this delusion, but we've, with wine we've lost any concept of the individual that we're serving. As an industry. And so we profitize, we make fun of people, we disenfranchise them, we call them stupid because of wines they drink. And it's really we who are ignorant. It's a, a lot of the 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 curriculum in wine study courses and and whatever is just actually erroneous. Yeah. And and so we like to to have these friendly taglines, like it brings people together. Well, unless you like white Zinfandel or Moscato, then you're not included. Or if you don't know this, or if you like that. And nobody's free from this attack. Uh, it, it's pervasive, and it's divisive, and it's time it stops.
0: Okay. I feel like I just got schooled a little <laughs> bit.
1: Well, here's the interesting thing. Um, <laughs> I'm working on something now called the Perception Project, Okay. and it starts with a very valid basis. You can research this. This is not stuff I'm making up, but everything a human being perceives is an illusion, a distorted illusion of reality. It's an interpretation. It's not real. How about that?
0: Like, I need to sit with that for a second. I need I need to wait. I need to uh, let that sink in a little bit.
1: Let's sink in. <laughs> there is no color. Mm-hmm. Color is not reality. Color is created in in the mind by energy and light refractions and so on. Same with smells and same with sound and everything else. It's an interpretation of... Energy that we call reality, Mm -hmm. and because it has to be inter, it has to be received, processed, interpreted, and so forth. Every individual perceives things differently, Mm -hmm. but we act as if you should smell this, or taste this, or like this, or don't like this. And instead of really understanding the the incredible wonder of of our sensory individuality or perceptive individuality we actually punish people for not agreeing so
0: yeah okay yeah. all right i'm picking up what you're laying down it's almost i've been in those wine classes where you've got you know eight in front of you and you're sniffing and you're sipping and all these things and the person next to you goes oh i smell this and i taste this and and I'm not smelling or tasting that, so I feel instantly stupid.
1: Yeah, what's wrong with me? Yeah. And this is this is the ultimate the ultimate arrogance of wine is is not really it's rarely by intention, but it's by righteousness of presuming what I perceive right. is correct. The way I rate the wine. And and so there's all these arguments mm-hmm. and all this divisiveness oh this wine goes with this food and then we make stuff up to support it <laughs> and, and and wine it, it's this isn't only wine this is this is so many things in life mm-hmm. it's how you take your coffee how do you take your coffee trish
0: i take my coffee uh with half and half and that is it
1: that's it okay and um how much do you like salt
0: um, I'm a more savory person than sweet.
1: Okay, but do you typically add a little bit more salt to your food, or like a little, or did you used to?
0: I used to, yes, yes. Yeah.
1: Okay, great. Do you have to cut tags out of your clothes because they irritate you?
0: Yes, sir. Or buy
1: tagless? Yeah. Uh huh.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And you're a real pain in the ass when you go shopping for pillowcases and bedding because you got to touch everything. Yeah. Or- Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So all that's indicative of the sensory world you live in. Mm-hmm. And there's very, very probably a correlation to your birth order.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But there's also impacts in how your genetics uh, were interpreted and how they changed your mother while she was carrying you as a fetus. Uh, if you were male and had all the traits that you have, um, uh, be high probability that that the that you, your genetics as a fetus had given your mother severe morning sickness and and so forth. These are all correlated. And then also, points to how your brain works in a sensory standpoint, which is highly distracted and, and even doing what you do. You wanna be expressed, you want people to love you and especially because our birth order okay. I want you to like me. Mm-hmm. And, and and by the way, I'm, I'm relatively in the same world you are. Okay. And so we like to be expressed. So people who live in this more hypersensitive uh, world of sensations actually have very consistent but unpredictable behaviors, and and you know self awareness and all sorts of stuff.
0: Fascinating, Tim. So, smarty pants, you say you don't read. How, where, where, how does this happen? Where do you get all of this? Audiobooks.
1: So il a la bon femme is you put an average. An eel of average weight, either cut in pieces or left whole. And and I just yeah, the internet was made for my brain. Really? Um,
0: how, wait, yeah. how how so?
1: Because we'll have a conversation and it'll something will resonate with me, and I can go look it up. Mm-hmm. And I can look up five different perspectives. On it. Okay. And then I've, I've surrounded myself with mentors and colleagues, li- literally over a hundred that I can call and say, "What, what's going on here?" Hmm. And that's what I've been doing uh, for uh, now 31 years. Uh, in terms of not trying to be the the end-all of the wine expert. You know, I used to be the guru of wine and food pairing, and now I firmly and authoritatively assert it's all made up, it's all BS. Right. Uh,
0: And you've actually been dubbed the wine anti-snob. Yes. Right.
1: After being called by Jancis Robinson the wine and food pairing guru, You know, I went through the steps. I I read the materials. I, I studied. I tried to learn the sciences and 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 all of these things. But a funny thing happened to me when I was going to the um, Master of Wine <laughs> examination in London. Um, I was in 1989. I I was one of the most epic fails in the history of the Institute of Master of Wine examination, seriously. And I used to be introduced as such <laughs> by the chairman who, who passed away a number of years ago but became just an absolute, like, best friend, okay. David Stevens. And so um, there was no study course. There was nothing, very little to prepare you for the exam except going over and taking it. And so I experienced the examination. I got that I only passed high school because of the um, the odds in multiple choice and true and false questions. I, I couldn't put together an argument. I don't read, how the heck am I going to write? Yeah. So I signed up for a writing course to help me improve my arguments, my skills in forming a concise, clear and authoritative essay. And I went to the wrong course oh, no. for, for three days. Oh, no. My oh. wife used to think I always lied about these stories, but but now over the decades, she's met the people involved in whatever and, and whatever. So I was working for Behringer at the time. I was, um, uh, had had their blessing. And so I came back from the master of wine exam, researched some writing seminars mm-hmm. to take and uh, picked one out and signed up for another one. <laughs> and I was booked for three days at the Stanford court because we were owned by Nestle. Behringer was owned by Nestle and Nestle owns Stouffer Hotels, which owns Stanford court. So I've got a suite at the Stanford court. I'm you know, I go down and I'm all ready on Monday morning to go do my thing. And there's something for electrical engineers, and it's like, "Excuse me, where's 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 this course?" They said, "Well, you idiot! If you, it was last week in San Jose." And I said, "Oh, okay. Well, I paid for it. Can I go to this course?" They said, "Sure." So I I sat for three days with 80 electrical engineers who were being taught that the more expert you become in subjects, the further and further you become removed from understanding the needs of the market
0: Hmm. and
1: of consumers and of people who operate outside of your area of expertise. Yeah. And that just hit me like a two by four. I was like, oh my God, that's the wine industry. Hmm. You know, you study, it's this language. No, you're an idiot. This goes with that. Oh, do you like that wine? No, this sucks. Oh, are you kidding? It's really expensive. Oh, no, it sucks me into the glass. Yeah. And we start lying and making pretenses. Now, it's fun. Yeah. (laughs) But it's this, this massive pretense. And so I was taught critical thinking and disruptive innovation. Hmm. And so for the last 30 years, those have been my, my guiding principles in a constructive and positive way, really trying to have the in, wine industry and community get that what we think of wine in history isn't, isn't how it was. Wine and food pairing is an imaginary experience that actually takes away from meaningful dialogue about what's happening between wine and food. Things happen. And for different individuals, one combination of wine and food can be great. And -hmm. and for somebody of equal expertise, sitting at the same table, literally eating out the same dish, it totally sucks. Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. So, So at that point in time, I was given the skills I needed, to corral all this stuff, put it on the paper. I passed the examination and I never stopped exploring the dimensions that, that had been exposed to me. And, and the other thing, it, it, it also gave me a permission to say, wait a minute, I don't, I'm the wine and food pairing guru, right? I'm, I know why. And I've got all these cockamamie reasons. So I started to reach out to scientists all around the world. I used to, I started to go back to everything I have ever read. And conclusively we make stuff up. We get righteous about it. We try to convince others and, and very frequently do that. That's the right way to do it and how what you should experience and whatever. But it, it becomes inhospitable because we don't really get to know each other and we don't get to know about ourselves.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And that's one of the things you said in, in the class that I attended was about sweet wine and dessert wine and that this idea, and I am guilty of it 100%. I'm not anymore, but I was guilty of this. I had my own opinions about people who only drank sweet wine. Yep. What, what, what's happening?
1: Yeah, and, and you've got a and we're and we're part of a uh, it, 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 these are these are called um, collective delusions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the collective is the, the wine uh, experts. All right. Uh, and so if you ask Wine experts, let's say about famous sweet wines like Chateau Ikem,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Right, that's a dessert wine. Not in here. It's not. Okay. You will not in. There's there's one mention in this entire book of Ikem with dessert. But there's plenty of mentions of it with fish and with beef and and oysters because it. The protocol of the table you would match the wine to the guest and as my old friend Harvey, st- uh, 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 god my brain's going mm. closer uh said oh what you mean you match the wine to the diner not the dinner
0: interesting
1: and that's what used to be done so if you went and had wild boar stew with you know this rich intense kind of thing, and you were a, a noble person and a, a dignitary visiting in Germany, you would be served actually really, really sweet wine. Because that was the famous wine, that was the highest honor to serve somebody. And so we have totally misconstrued all this stuff about what wines were being yeah. drunk and uh, very few people know, you know, we make fun of uh, sweet wine drinkers. oh, it's because Americans were raised on Coca-Cola, blah, blah, blah. What that prevents us from knowing is a 100 years ago, it was very uh, typical for French champagne, and we're talking about Moet, and we're talking about Veuve Clicot and so forth, was typically, as consumed in France, 30% sweeter than Coca-Cola.
0: Oh my gosh
1: and you didn't know that right and you won't learn that in any of your courses you and and so forth so so just things are spinning out of control and and hospitality is is about getting to know people inviting people into your life it's about empathy as you were saying trying to see how they see the world not telling them oh you drink sweet wines and whatever um when you gave when when you started using less salt, is there any hypertension, high blood pressure, or heart disease in your family? Nope. No. No. Uh, if if a certain person shows certain hypersensitivity traits and then says, Oh, I, I don't use salt, I, I hate food, it's it's oversalted and whatever, and they show the traits of putting cream or half and half in their coffee, cutting tags out and these other hypersensitive. Uh, sensory things, uh, it, it usually correlates to an early life experience where salt was equated with disease and death and, mm. and unhealthy. And, and now we're, we're brought up learning that. So, so we, and this is a neurological shift. Your palate didn't change. Mm-hmm. The way you process information around salt internally, your neurology and, and psychology changed.
0: Interesting. That's a lot, Tim. Whew.
1: Well, on on just just a note for everybody who loves salt. You, do you know some? You, you you've met people, and the food comes out. They grab the salt shaker and start adding. Which
0: I find highly annoying.
1: Yes. So stop it. Because it's actually the number one sign that that person has more taste buds.
0: Okay. And they're
1: experiencing bitterness at a really high level that you might not even be able to imagine. And they know they need to eliminate that bitterness so they can taste the food. So salt suppresses bitterness. Mm -hmm. There's an old adage, take the bitter pill with a grain of salt. (laughs) And that, and you can find the science on the bitter suppressive qualities of salt. And so rather than understanding why that person's salting their food, we judge them ignorantly Yeah, and we get annoyed Uh because they're experiencing something radically different than other people.
0: And this, I mean, I get annoyed because they haven't even tasted the food yet and then they're already salting it. They don't need to.
1: They already know.
0: All right. I won't get annoyed anymore.
1: I, I know it. Yeah. I, won't,
0: I won't get annoyed, and I promise. It, talk
1: to them, ask them the questions about their sensitivities in their life and and being picked on because of their behaviors and whatever. And then all of a sudden you'll go, God, all that came from a, from learning something about why they're grabbing the salt shaker?
0: Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It is amazing. You're, and you talk about this whole wine and food pairing and how it is ridiculous. But it's everywhere. It is everywhere. At yep. every single winery that I visit, it's everywhere.
1: Oh, it's it's incredible, and and it's not that it's not fun, and it's not that people aren't curious and want to learn more, but it's all based on pure BS.
0: Interesting, absolutely
1: pure BS.
0: <laughs> I have all gotten. Right? Uh, go ahead, please.
1: I I'll, I'll give you and and anyone listening. Uh, one of the things to try. Okay. Now, when you come, when when COVID's over and you come to Prescott, and I'll cook you dinner, and we'll do a whole night of this, and there's plenty of video of this of of me, um, and uh, so so there's this commonly acknowledged truism: red wine goes with red meat. Right. And what are the reasons you've been told?
0: Because it's, um, you know, red wine is earthier and it has flavors that go with, you know, the the red taste of red meat. And yes, I mean, I've been told that my entire life, red wine, red meat.
1: And the protein's in the tannin and the yes. fat and it makes it, it, the it, wine smooth.
0: It, it cuts, yeah, the tannins in the wine and the fat in the, the, the steak, it, it all, it co- sort of cuts each other, yes, yeah.
1: All right, so human beings think in a curious way and it's called metaphors. So a metaphor, every word is a metaphor. It, it's representational of something and whether the word is book or man or red or whatever. And so then the human mind connects metaphors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cows are big. You need a big wine. And a big have you noticed that that only big red wines get big glasses and little wines get little, but they're all the same size. And oh but the, the weight, the heaviness Next time you get a chance, this will work with any low-alcohol sweet wine. Uh, Moscato, uh, a low-alcohol, really high-quality German Riesling Mm -hmm. that's sweet, uh, and white Zinfandel. Take a bottle of big red Cabernet, pour it gently into a glass of Moscato, and the red wine will float, because technically, the word heavy construes weight, not metaphorical weight, but something weighs more. And sugar weighs more than alcohol. And, and the Cabernet will separate and clearly float to the top. The heavy wine sank. That was the Moscato. Wow. So, so here's what you've never done. Um, cook a, a really nice steak. Mm-hmm. And seriously, you've gotta do this. And, and I'll give you some simpler things to do until you can do the whole thing. Pour yourself a big-ass red wine. Cook a rare steak with nothing on it. And if you use butter uh, on it, use unsalted butter, because okay. butter suppresses bitterness. OK. So cook an absolutely plain, grill it, char it. Mm, oh, fire. <laughs> calling for a red wine. It's not calling for a red wine. Um, Take a sip of the wine, eat some of the fat, try the wine, it gets more bitter. It doesn't, the cheese doesn't smooth it out, the cream doesn't create creaminess in combination, whatever, we made all that up. Tonight, pour a glass of red wine, just try some, a little bit of canola oil. Sip wine, try canola oil, sip wine, more bitter. Try unsalted butter, try pork fat. Try anything but olive oil because of different chemi- chemical constituents in olive oil and pH and acidity won't do it. But any any pure form of fat, it, it's a complete lie that the fat coats your palate and smooths wine out. Doesn't happen. Now try the protein, and you've heard the word umami. Mm-hmm. Do you know who introduced that word into common usage in western culture?
0: No. You did.
1: I'm the Swami of Umami, and I've been talking about it since 1989. I've got an official Swami of Umami t-shirt. And you can't you wouldn't believe the pushback and the anger that was directed towards me. From saying, hey, you guys, I'm working with these scientists, and there's this other dimension of taste, primary taste, called umami. And most of the people who talk about it or even teach about it really still don't even know what's, what's done. In the, uh, in the uh, appendices of my book, you'll see a paper written by the scientist for my book, who he and his wife discovered the human receptor responsible for umami. And these are the kind of mentors that I work with and, and, and so forth. So what happens is we use these metaphors, oh, this dish would kill the wine, this, you know, the salt's horrible, you shouldn't do what, just because it, it's good for you doesn't mean you should do it, something's wrong with you, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it, it keeps us from understanding what's really going on.
0: Why have we done all this? Why? To, to sell. It's human nature. Okay.
1: I mean, look at our country. Look at the world.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> What's going on? I
0: know. I know. Um, let's talk about the point that you realized you needed to stop drinking. When was that?
1: Okay. Well, so I knew. I knew for a long time I needed to stop drinking. Okay. Um. And. Uh, in 1990, I passed a Master of Wine examination and gotten divorced, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I was a um, uh, a very effective, high operating alcoholic.
0: I was going to ask. You know, I was okay. really,
1: yeah, I was doing a great job. The more I drank, the more I knew about wine, and <laughs> sometimes, um, and then. Uh, uh, I was playing in a rock Motown band, I'm a guitar player, uh, and I moved back to Napa. I had been down at, at Meridian Vineyards down in Paso Robles for about a year, and I got our band a gig to play for the manager of the Doobie Brothers at B.R. Cone Winery, and we're the band, <laughs> and we had this really hot singer um, and a female vocalist, And all of a sudden I'm single and, uh, at practice one time, I, uh, it got canceled. So I said, well, let's go have dinner at Trevina. And it turns out we're both roller skaters and we got, she was getting out of a relationship and all this. So I said, okay, so I courted her, she married me, uh, and, and. I also did it because, you know, guitar players are a dime a dozen, and she's a, a professionally trained and really smart and really way above my head, beautiful human being. And so um, uh, we got married, and we were just a train wreck waiting to happen. Uh-oh. And, and we were actually just about at the end of a very short, you know, second marriage for both of us. And something she did that, that was just immensely courageous in my mind. And I said, you know what? I'm never going to do any better. Maybe it's not them. Maybe it's me. And so I checked, checked into Crutcher's Serenity center where members of the Grateful Dead would go. And, um, it was, uh, up on Howell mountain. And, um, and I went into a 28 day recovery program and, Made the decision that, you know, I would do whatever it takes to stay with this woman. She's in the next room over here after 20, 27 years. Mm. And uh, that I would need to, uh, mm-hmm. to make some changes.
0: Yeah. Did she call you on your stuff?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Okay. Yeah. You, so you said you were highly functional and you hear that phrase rock bottom. Did that happen for you?
1: Yeah, it, it does, and every it, it gets into a whole different conversation, and and also you know I have to be very very responsible right. with my sobriety because I'm completely transparent. I get calls literally from all around the world uh-huh. of of people who are in the industry and have read you know that I'm a recovering alcoholic, and and they're thinking they would like. You know to learn more or whatever, and I can share my story. I'm. Uh, I get a lot of calls from spouses and and uh, colleagues or concerned parents. Mm. You know, um, uh, literally even this week, uh, and and it helps keep me sober because I uh, the bottom for a lot of people can be like your 23rd DUI when you finally kill somebody. Mm-hmm or bottom could be just my life's unworkable i really need to to change hmm. and and making that commitment so bottom is you know there's no no, no absolute definition right. of it and and some people just go into recovery know that and just and you just see it going down and and i just lost a very very dear friend uh and the combination of trying to recover and the pandemic uh, all, was, was a disaster for that person.
0: Yeah, yeah. You hear, too, um, listening to other recovering addict stories, whether it's alcohol or, or drugs or whatever, that celebrations are different. That they used to celebrate with a line of Coke or a, a bottle of, of tequila or whatever, that the celebrations have to become different. Celebrations mean, you know, just going home and being with your family because the way they used to celebrate is not their life anymore, and so the whole lifestyle has to change.
1: Well, yes, and 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 again, it gets back to the this cool stuff that that I get to research. Yeah, and I mean, and there's two sides of what I do. I mean, one is the pragmatic. We've got uh, 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 one of my. Uh, companies is called Wine Business Education, LLC, and it's online uh, education program specifically for the business of wine. I've, I've got a class tonight uh, because I'm on faculty with Washington State University, and we just got done with the International uh, Wine Business Invitational, and we had teams from Switzerland and Hong Kong and Washington and Florida and New York all creating virtual brands and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I really love that aspect of it. And, um, and you can take the course through Nap Valley Wine Academy, or, or just go to winebusinesseducation.com. Uh, the, the other side of what I get to do is the perception, uh, the Venotypes. types. Uh, it's a company called ecode.me. We've all, all got this string of code that's inside of us and there are things that are hardwired and there are things that are variable all right and so my passion is has really become learning more about how how human beings interpret the illusions that we call reality mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we what we're perceiving is not reality. It's not even shared. You know, one person has a behavior, their brain tells them, here comes the food, I know what I need to do, I grab the salt, I salt it before I even taste it. <gasps> How can you do that? And, and the reason they do that is hidden to most of us. And so what we'll do is is argue about things. Uh, if you ever want to see these inane arguments, put something about cilantro onto a post on Facebook. Oh, oh yeah. I didn't use to, yeah. But what most people don't know is it's, uh, OR6A2 is the genetic SNP, and if you have that, and and it's findable in your 23andMe results or whatever. If you have that, you get this horrible, disgusting, soapy experience. And with everybody around you saying, Oh, I didn't you'll learn to like it, your palate's not sophisticated, etc. Yeah. Well, our friend we were talking about a little bit ago is Julia Child, and she has that mm-hmm. genetic predisposition and larry king who just passed away there was a famous interview where larry king said is there anything you can't eat and she goes cilantro i can't stand cilantro how in the name of god anybody can eat that stuff (laughs) and and he said well if if you're get a dish in that has cilantro what do you do well i either try and pick it out and throw it on the floor or i send it back and i'd say why didn't you tell me there was cilantro in this?
0: Right, right, and and the people who love cilantro judge the people who hate it.
1: Exactly. Instead of, oh, well, that's interesting. I, you know, why don't you? Or how? What's your experience of that? Right. So, so, so we judge. Oh, that per. Oh, I'm so. In- we, we go to a restaurant where the chef decides he knows how much salt everybody, that is the most ignorant dumbass crap and we just shouldn't put up with it. And, and it prevents us from actually knowing the fat doesn't smooth out the That's Right, tendon. right. Now, here's the last part of your trick. Take a little salt and lemon on your hand after you've done the fat. Take a sip of the wine, lick your hand, you've done this before. Mm-hmm. Maybe with tequila, <laughs> try the wine smooth as silk.
0: And if you look
1: at Bordelaise sauce, if you look at Béarnaise sauce, if you look at uh, Bistecca alla Fiorentina, the beef steak of Tuscany, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you'll find the salt and the acidity usually in fairly high levels because it makes the wine taste smooth. And it's the salt and the acidity, not all this other crap. Right. And then it also depends largely on your sensitivity to acidity and bitterness and astringency and how your brains become wired. So there you go.
0: I promise I will never judge another person who doesn't like cilantro, I promise.
1: And when you see a sweet wine drinker, as I said in the course, but it always bears repeating. Mm -hmm. If somebody says, well, oh, I don't like wine. Well, you might be talking to my mother-in-law which is, she's a PhD in economics, she's a millionaire, she was a fast-pitch softball pro and a a semi-tour golfer, and she's the reason Moscato became so popular. Because she's a white Zin drinker. Mm -hmm. I had no clue. My wife was embarrassed to introduce me, and I just absolutely love this woman, Joanne. She is awesome. Mm -hmm. And I found when I was trying to find what other wine she liked, Moscato made her go wine. Or made her go wow. Okay. So in two thousand seven, I actually did the market research, the product development and the repositioning of Moscato for Sutter Home, that it and in seven years it became number three selling white white grape variety in the United States.
0: Exactly. But nobody even thought of that
1: market because you know
0: Exactly. Yeah. We got to stop.
1: Yeah.
0: We got to stop. Yeah. Okay. I promise. I promise. All I right, will. What else? Um, I do want to ask one quick question about when you sort of came out that I'm a recovering alcoholic. Did you get hate from the wine industry?
1: Ooh, Lots of it. Really? Um, well, the, the, the funny thing was my wife hates it when I tell the story, but I, I, I came home and I said, um, I'm going away for 28 days. <laughs> I'm I'm going into recovery, and she's from a family of al- alcoholism and and stuff. Okay. So many of us are, and uh and I said I'm I'm going to stop drinking, and you know the love and support that that you would feel. She's like, what? You're crazy. You can't stop drinking. <laughs> You're a master of wine. Your <laughs> career. <laughs> she she flew off the handle. I said. Sorry, Ivy, but if because we weren't at a great point in our lives yeah. back then, um, and so for uh, almost eight years, uh, only a handful of people, uh, the, the 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 entire executive team at Behringer and the people who who served in the Hudson House that were you know just had bottle waiting to refill all of a sudden, what happened to Tim? um but for the most part i i i continued to act like a jerk and an idiot so nobody really knew i stopped drinking
0: <laughs> but i guess it is one of those things and i'm i'm so happy that you wanted to talk about it and it's out in the open because it is for a lot of people it is something that they just don't they don't feel comfortable bringing up and it's and and we the the rest of us around you are worried if we drink around you oh. or if we talk about it around you because that could be it, and then you could fly off the handle. And so it's something that we have to talk about it, like mental health, like, like other you know stories yes. about, you know what I mean? So it's just, it's a disease. It's not necessarily something that, um, yeah, you know what I'm talking about.
1: Well, yeah, and, and, and because again, going back to the judging, oh, he didn't have willpower, or he couldn't handle it, yeah. or this or that. Yeah. And I, I literally, I mean, the research I do now is is cutting edge stuff. I mean, it's re- I mean it's stuff that would literally make your jaw drop to the floor that maybe we can do some other time on this whole perception thing. and And so especially people who 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 maybe you know think a little bit or a lot that they have a problem, they're they're actually uh, confronted by somebody else getting help and and whatever. And this is, this, this is the, the dynamics of alcoholism and codependency and dependency and the cycle of, of don't ask, don't tell. And I'd never had a functional relationship in my entire life until I took responsibility for who I was being. And so in May, it'll be 28 years with my absolutely beautiful, incredible, adorable wife, Kate.
0: Fantastic! Congratulations on that. That's Thanks. amazing. Yeah. Um, and when you judge competitions, wine competitions, I mean, do you ever get hate from that?
1: Oh, I get it from. I mean, you you literally would. I, I wish I had video to show what would happen when I talked about umami back in 1990. Okay. I literally, I had somebody in the Institute of Masters of Wine who was. Had kind of dedicated themselves to refuting and disproving what what's now part of our lexicon. There are restaurants and hamburgers called umami burgers and whatever. Uh, but there was, and, and this is the resistance to change. Yeah. And then when you get when you fuel that with alcohol, it it becomes just a a monumental you know wall.
0: Okay. Well. Thanks for um, breaking it down for all of us and making me think about things that I've never thought about before.
1: Okay, and for everybody out there, try the fat and the steak and the this and that. I'm gonna. Um, Try the salt and lemon, that's that's just a wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when you, you you know sweet wine drinkers in your life? Mm Mm-hmm. call one or text one or email one and say what well, I just learned them mo- I'm sorry for for having judged you I found out that loving sweet wines more than anything is a, is is a sign of having vastly more taste buds mm-hmm. and higher perceptive uh, 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 skills and Not next skills, time but,
0: yeah. yeah next time I meet a sweet wine drinker I'm just gonna hug them I'm just gonna give them the biggest hug ever. And just tell them, yes. high five, congratulations. Yep. Okay. Yeah, exactly. You actually brought that up in a class. I think you used um, the example of salmon. So you cook salmon with no salt, no no flavoring, and drink like a Pinot Noir, and then you add lemon right. and salt to the salmon, and then do the Pinot, and then it's a completely different experience.
1: Yeah, and so, and, and, and from the metaphor standpoint. Pinot Noir is not as big a wine as a Cabernet. And if you look at the specialty glasses, the Pinot Noir glass isn't as big as a Cabernet glass, but it, and uh, a salmon is a fish, but it's a big fish <laughs> and it's red. So, you know, if you hit a, a, a cow with a tractor, that's red. <laughs> and, and so they go together. So salmon is kind of red and Pinot's typically not as red as Cabernet. And this is all that's going on. Yeah. So then we then the Northwest, oh, and we get salmon in the Northwest and we make Pinot Noir so they go together and it's total crock. I mean it's totally <laughs> we just make all this stuff
0: up. Okay. Well thanks. Instead
1: I- of saying have some delicious salmon, have a Moscato, have a Chardonnay, whatever you choose. And if it's whatever you're having, whether it's Cabernet or, or, or White Zinfadelph is if it's a little bitter, just put a squeeze of lemon and a titch more salt. Problem solved.
0: Beautiful. Well, I will say, I was at a winery yesterday, and the winemaker we were talking about you because I said I had this interview. Oh. And he said, what I love about him so much is just this idea of drink whatever you want with whatever you want, food wise. Just do what you like. There is there are no rules when it comes to that. And he said
1: that. So the in. And and ju- and just to prepare you for the next time that comes up, say it's not that there's rules about it, but there are principles. There are okay. things that happen, and it's and you've got to understand the individual, and and it's not everything's going to be good or go together. There are some things, and umami in the food and sweetness create sensory adaptation, which is a neural a brain thing and your wine will be more bitter, more astringent, and then salt and acidity, counterbalance that. Okay. And, and these are the principles of, of good culinary practices, and the ability to say, oh, you love sweet wines? Let me, get, let me get you something. Or, you know what? I don't have any sweet wine, but I got this great Pinot Gris, and, uh, and I've got a bottle of, of cassis or raspberry syrup, Let me do what they do in France. It's Mm -hmm. called a KIR, Mm -hmm. K-I-R. And the French could add a cube of sugar. They could put water in their wine. They could make cocktails. They drank vermouth. They had Campari, Dubonnet. Wine was rarely consumed in France in a pure fashion there was no wine and food pairing. And if the wine sucked, you could make it unsuck.
0: (laughs) Perfect, unsuck it, unsuck your wine. Um, And you're still loving to cook, right?
1: Oh, I've got uh, uh, lamb ribs in the oven. I was gonna gonna ask. I've gone on a keto diet. I've I've lost about 50 pounds and I'm more fit and in better shape than I've ever been in my life. And I'm 68, I'm gonna be 69 next month. And um, yeah. I love to cook. I love to share. And, and I just feel this, this profound connection to people now that I, that I never used to have. Amazing. And and for that, I'm, that's what I'm really grateful about.
0: That's incredible. We actually do keto and my husband has way better luck with it than I do, but he lost, I don't mean 20 pounds. In fact, his blood work came back the best it's ever been in his entire life, his cholesterol, the bad cholesterol went down, blood pressure went down. So he's having really good luck with that. So we that's a whole nother podcast interview though.
1: Uh, yeah. And, and again, that's on a personal level because right. uh, more and more evidence that genetics dictate yes. that if your lineage goes back here, they were agrarian and, and your grains are fine and, and whatever. For me, it's a kiss of death. And mm-hmm. probably because my... My family in Lapland was eating seal blubber.
0: <laughs> oh, so so lamb ribs are on the menu tonight for dinner. I was gonna ask, what's for dinner? Yeah. Delicious. Yeah, and,
1: and, and, and if, if any doctor sees what I eat, they would just be horrified, but I've lost 55 pounds. Uh, my triglycerides went from 325 to under 200, same, and, and same with my cholesterol. Amazing. And I've got got energy, you know, roller skate and play music and... I love it. Kayak and fish.
0: Well, keep it up. Keep it up for sure. All right. Tim and I, let's get to the final three. Best advice you've ever been given.
1: Best advice I've uh, ever given was... to to really understand at a very deep level that what we perceive as is all an illusion, it's individual, it's a distortion of reality, and there is no such thing as objectivity in life in any way, shape, or form. Everything is subject to certain agreements and Mm -hmm. certain conditions and whatever.
0: Okay, what about some advice that you've been given to you that's always stuck with you?
1: Oh, don't take yourself so seriously.
0: That's a good one, that's a good one. Yeah. um what's your happy place
1: my happy place is it's got to be uh in stinky sneakers in the muddy tidal waters fishing in the backwaters of florida
0: Ah, i love it and you you did that as a kid
1: and as an adult
0: as an, as an adult okay awesome um final meal final drink what would that look like
1: well you know that that's really great because uh, I I don't know. <laughs> I just I just hope whatever it is, that final final meal, final drink is with people that I love. And and I really and beyond that I don't give a rat's ass. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had it all. I mean I've been I've been in the rare wine business and all around the world, you know, all this stuff. But it's it's it, you know, some fried chicken and a Zevia root beer. Have you tried Zevia sodas yet?
0: No, but I do love oh, root beer.
1: Keto, it's it's a, a a root beer ginger ale, Zevia, and it's uh uh with stevia. Yeah, write that down. It's awesome.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm a big root so beer. Some
1: fan. some fried chicken. Sarah Scott's fried chicken. Sarah was the senior executive chef at Mondavi for 14 years. You'll find a chapter she wrote in my book also and uh but um she reintroduced me to how how simple culinary things can be you Mm -hmm. know uh do you make fried chicken
0: um i don't i don't make it but i'm from south carolina and so i I was brought up on fried chicken all right Mm -hmm. so
1: there's all the buttermilk and the egg or no egg and the this or this or that Uh sarah scott's fried chicken senior executive chef at Mondavi, just a culinary whiz, absolutely a wonderful human being. Um, rinse your chicken, leave it wet, season it, roll it in flour and fry it. Mm. It is the best fricking fried chicken you'll ever have in your life.
0: Yep, we were buttermilk and Texas Pete.
1: Right, try this other, other thing and you'll go, why did I overcomplicate this so much? <laughs> it's such a simple thing.
0: It is. It's the simple things, I think, that matter the most. Yeah. Um, Tim, you've been so fun. Thank you.
1: Absolutely a pleasure. Great to catch up with it, you.
0: Really nice to catch up. My brain's a little fried after all of that, but it's okay. I'll um...
1: send, me, send me any questions or follow-up or, or whatever. It's called the, the, the Hanai headache. Yes. Um, <laughs> it'll be okay by tomorrow, maybe.
0: I'm going to write that down. And if people want to learn more,
1: about um, my Venotype, where can they go? Uh, go to myvinotype.com. Okay. And and then buy my book on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Why you like the wines you like? Uh, and if you want to learn more about a career or working or being in the wine business, go to winebusinesseducation.com or Napa Valley Wine Academy, and you can find my course. It's on sale there right now, actually. So
0: beautiful. All right, and for those listening, if you would like to listen to this podcast, you can do so pretty much wherever you like to listen to podcasts and you can also watch it at KTBL.com and on YouTube just search Offscript with Trish Gloss one more time. Tim Hanai, I'm going to go take care of my Hanai headache, but thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Great to see you and good to let's see get you together post pandemic, okay. I,
0: I would love to. Thank you, Tim.